This episode features graphic depictions of sexual abuse and violence. Discretion is advised. Hit it. Hey, how you doing? Hey, where you been? Three girls talking about a lot of love and sin. And there's someone sitting next to us. Who that freaking man? It's ooh, oh, oh, it's Keith. Hey guys, this is kind of a special episode about an issue I care a lot about, the sex trade and sex trafficking. In this episode, you're gonna hear a few different conversations and I think they're all really important voices to hear. Don't worry, I'll be here to guide you through all of it. Welcome to Three Girls, One Keith. Rach, what is going on over there? (laughs) I'm so sorry. You're, you're, you are holding your mic like how Gene holds his bottle, just like. <laughs> well, however, I hold it, somebody always comes over and fixes it. So I was trying to make it so they didn't have to do that. All right. <clears throat> yeah, they could just fix it. Anyway, welcome to Three Girls, One Keith. Now, now, Keith, yes. this is the time of day where you start to get moody and start giving dirty looks to people. Are you oh. planning on? Um, are you planning on continuing that tradition? Yes. Okay. Oh, no. Great. <laughs> um, don't worry about it's it. Terrible. If no. you fall asleep, don't take it personally. It's just that time of day. I. <laughs> I am, I am so excited about our guest today. Me too. Anybody who's ever met me knows that Bridget Everett is my favorite live performer. And I stand by that. And I would say my second favorite Thank live... Per- no, Keith, you are... <laughs> what? We're not, we're not even talking top 100, okay? I would say my second favorite live performer is Sarah Jones, who is here. And she is with us today. Sarah is a Tony and Obie award-winning performer... Do you guys have an Obi or a Tony? I don't. <laughs> I have an Obi. Oh, f- come on, Bridge. <laughs> you, you lost a Tony. Why are we bringing up awards people lost, Kevin? That's kind of my favorite thing to do with you. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I suddenly don't feel as safe. No, this is not a safe environment, Kara. <laughs> and her current critically acclaimed show, Sell by Date, which is what I got to see, and it's amazing. And it's an incredible hit show. Can you tell us a little bit about how Sell by Date came to be? Yes. yes. Thank you for all of this. I'm blushing under, my skin is brown, so it's more russet, but I'm really <laughs> blushing. Okay. I started out doing characters, performing as different people. So the first voice you hear in Sell By Date is so much kind of more attractive than my own. And so I really, if I could, I'd just go around like this all the time. You but could do that. I re- I've done it and it doesn't yeah. work well for relationships, just <laughs> oh, so we're clear. Really? Um, I, I ultimately, don't know. it doesn't Keep pan us so confused. Yeah. It doesn't pan <laughs> okay, so out. Sell By Date is a one Sarah Jones show. And she tells the story through different characters right. that she completely transforms into with her voice. The whole point is that in the future is where this play is set. And this professor, hello, me, is looking back on your era. And frankly, it doesn't go well. But no, you know, in all seriousness, the idea was to look at sex, what's called sex work, what I've learned many people call commercial sexual exploitation. I just wanted to kind of like look at as many stories as I could from a lot of different perspectives. I want to say one thing, which is I know that this the topic isn't automatically a knee-slapping good time. Um, no. And so the, but I want to say my whole goal was for people to leave the theater not feeling like they wanted to slit their wrists. Yeah, yeah and you do that. It's a totally enjoyable show. And how can people find you and, and see the show? So they should find me at Yes, I'm Sarah Jones on Instagram. But the whole- And it's with an H. It's with an H. Yeah. Yes, and listen, you're going to find out Get why. the H, honey. The why H? is there an H? <laughs> because, hi, my name is Lorraine. I'm in the show because <laughs> even though I'm an old lady, 
I just wanted to uh, encourage my husband to be a little more frisky, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I think I do. I think you do. And the next thing I knew, I'm finding out about uh, some of the pornography with the things I saw. Oh. I was just trying what did to you find see? normal couples right. making love. And uh, there's so many people together at one time. <laughs> anyway. So the whole idea to bring voices into this that aren't just what you'd expect. It's right. your Nana. It's your Bubby. Yeah. It's your, everybody's touched by this issue. I loved, is is she Haitian or Jamaican? Jamaican. Jamaican. So, yeah. Oh, and tell me about her a little bit. So she, when we meet her, she is actually at a rally that yeah. is promoting the rights of sex workers. And I want to be clear that my goal with the show is for people to come and form their own opinion. So I want them right. to learn more about it. There's no f- agenda. I'm not trying to tell you what to think. I'm trying to show you what I know is happening. Mm-hmm. And she is there rallying and she's saying, you know, we want no justice, no peace. You understand? Yeah. And then, of course, if you see the sign, it says no justice, no peace. P-I-E-C-E. Peace of us. <laughs> no justice, no peace of us. But the point about that is that it seems like she's kind of happy-go-lucky and she's saying this is the only option I have to make money. Right. And if that is the only option I have, then back off me and stop trying to mess with my rights to do this work. Mm-hmm. And then you find out a little bit later on that actually she was coerced and forced to do that. So it's very complicated. Is it yeah. a choice if something you must do to survive is that choice I don't know you have to ask more questions about that how is she ending up in that situation right right. and then another one of my favorites is the character who you toward the end of the show and what's her name she says like this Um, her name is Vanita and I think it's very important for people to realize young girls especially like if you don't know somebody their real origin story it could be a lot of um Things that you don't understand. So that's why I'm in the show. Yeah. And I love Amy Shua. Oh, and, and I love too. you. Bridget's dog is crazy cute too. Oh. Yeah, Bridget's dog is very cute. But it's so interesting that, you know, the, the thing that like, people don't stop and take the time to put themselves in different situations. But you, didn't you grow up with like a diverse family, right? That's true. I think that's changing. I think more and more people have multicultural, whether it's families mm. or neighborhoods or whatever, but... For me, for sure, when I was growing, I, there was no Obama to reference. I couldn't be like, I'm normal. See, like the president of the United States is also kind of mixedy and a little bit weird. Like I was just a little bit mixedy and a little bit weird. And it made me have empathy for people who didn't look like me. Right. So I, you know, when you hear the old Jewish lady, it doesn't automatically conjure five foot 11 black girl. But, you know, for me, those two things go together. It makes yeah. sense. And I think also empathy for people from different class backgrounds. My family is like, you know, middle class with working class roots. And so I couldn't ever look and be like, that person's lazy, that person's on welfare. I knew the backstory that like all the jobs had been removed from that person's neighborhood. It was mm-hmm. like deindustrialized. Like I always had a little more context. So I think when you apply that same lens to what's happening with, you know, the sex industry, or the sex trade or commercial sexual exploitation. And I want to be clear, I have friends who, you know, they are dominatrixes or they work in this area and they are conflicted about how to talk about it. They want to be protected. They want to not be victimized. And at the same time, if we decriminalize it, what happens? Like, you know, pimps can kind of walk away with the bag. So it's a tricky, tricky thing. That's what we're examining on this episode. Okay, so along with talking to Sarah Jones, this summer my friend Alexi Ash Myers stopped by the podcast to inform us on the ins and outs of the sex trade. Let's listen to that conversation. Hi, Alexi. Hi. Hi. Uh, Alexi Ashart is my friend, and she's an attorney, 
with Sanctuary for Families, New York's leading service provider and advocate for survivors of domestic violence, sex trafficking, and related forms of gender violence. Alexi co-chairs the New York State Anti-Trafficking Coalition, and she's named one of New York's new abolitionists for her work in anti Traffic. I feel like a big piece of shit. Yeah, right? mm-hmm. yeah. About Jesus midway Christ. through that, I Jesus just Christ. you start saying stuff. I want to start confessing. I just want to cry. I know. <laughs> I'm gonna take an online course or something. Yeah, I'm worthless. I need several edibles right now. So you have started to educate me about sex trafficking over the last couple of years. Yeah. So one huge misconception about trafficking is that you have to cross borders, that you have to be chained in a basement. But really, you could be under control of a pimp who is born and raised in Brooklyn and you're a child who was born and raised in Brooklyn and it's still trafficking. Okay, wow. yeah, that is a huge misconception. I didn't know that. Keith what? keeps winking. Please stop, stop winking, Keith. It's disgusting. There are cameras here and we do have evidence. No, can we just go around and say like kind of what our sort of instinct has always been about sex work and if we know where we stand on it. All right, let me go first. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I think you have the most experience. Here yet. comes no, Keith. Well, my, first of all, my John name was Harry. That's oh, that's disgusting. So that's but awful. No, I always looked at that because I have a few friends that has ventured into that. Has but ventured I, into be, being a sex worker? Yes, or okay. sex worker, yeah. yes. And I always looked at it as the... If you decriminalize it, right, and made it legal, you have a better hold on it and stop pushing it underground. Because you push it underground, you push them closer to the pimps and, you know, and and it's just unsafe. Yeah, I think a lot of people feel that way. And when you hear about Amsterdam, you think, oh, the people get tested. They, you know, and so I think a lot of people have that same perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the girls feel the same way. Mm-hmm. They feel the same way. They feel like you're not making them say it. it's not safe for them anymore. Yeah. Because it's going to happen. What decriminalization? No. Or oh, people are going to sleep with prostitution. Oldest profession in the world. Yes. Right. It's going to happen. Oldest exploitation so. in the world. At oldest exploitation <laughs> yes, in the world. It yeah. Be, it's, no. Well. Yeah. But, well, we're going to find out because numbers, she has information and we I just have, have so a vibe. Let me get my. Yeah. My, get your rolodex of the numbers. Roll the First of all, when you said the girls all feel this way, you're no. not a rep for the pr- no. for prostitutes. No. no also, no, no, it's not your girls. And your John name is. It sounds like an old Jewish uncle. That's what I had to get. Harry is vile, and so are you. What are you, what's your vibe about prostitution? The girls feel like this. Uh, honestly, I, I have no information, right? And I know enough to know that I'm a wild moron. Whereas <laughs> Keith thinks that he's uh, running a union for prostitutes. Yeah, for he is having meetings. It's, yeah, it's I agree not- with Keith that it should be decriminalized. But also, there's like a a small percentage, like I have some of my friends that are trans, and that's that's sort of like. Really, they have a hard time finding work, so right. they they sort of it's like that's what they're kind of forced to do. But um, yeah, I also feel for these kids, and you know, especially when you're younger. I don't know where the line is, but I know that a lot of people are really desperate, and that's how they make their money. And so I want them to have that opportunity. I think that's a really common feeling is is that an idea that decriminalization would be helpful. Now, can you please educate us and tell us what we don't? No, okay, about so, what that would mean. So I think that, first of all, in this country, we really legislate for the people who need it the most, for the minority of people, the most marginalized people, the most vulnerable who don't have a voice, not for 
the very small percentage of people who are in the sex trade consensually. And it is a really overwhelmingly small number of people who do it consensually. You know, it's a, it's a myth that decriminalizing the sex trade empowers these women or you can put in safety checks. So the Netherlands wanted to legalize in order to control and regulate the employment of what they call sex workers. They thought this would protect the people in the sex trade, that it would protect them from being coerced into prostitution, that it would eliminate sex trafficking, and that they could sever ties between um, organized crime and prostitution. So those goals weren't met, and they saw around 2003, the city of Amsterdam saw that those goals weren't being met, that the sex trade was run by organized crime, and they started closing down their brothels and their red light districts. In 2006, a Europol investigation around that time revealed that Dutch pimps and brothel owners were collaborating with traffickers to bring women into the country, and those women were subject to extreme violence and murder. Mm. So the question of why it didn't work, well, one, law enforcement, when a regime is decriminalized, has no incentive to investigate prostitution activities. And two, they'd go in for brothel inspections, you know, talk to the women, but the women were guarded by a pimp who was yeah. either posing as a bodyguard or a security guard. And so they weren't able to disclose the real conditions of their situation. And then there's there's the status quo, which is full criminalization, where everyone is criminalized and arrested. Is that what it is right now? Yeah. Okay. So in all 50 states, minus a few counties in Nevada, it's fully criminalized. So every party— Keith goes every on party. Travelocity. <laughs> um, <laughs> But then there's a third model, which is what me and my advocates and all the survivors who I work with every day support, and that's called the equality model. And that's keeping criminal the crimes of uh, patronizing prostitution and promoting prostitution and pimping, brothel-keeping, sex tourism, and decriminalize prostitution for the people who are bought and sold in the sex trade, whether it's women, girls, trans community members. They're decriminalized, they're not arrested, and instead they're offered robust services and housing and job skills and economic empowerment. What are robust um, services? So anything from legal, medical, gynecological, psychological. Okay. We're trying to move... New York, at least, and hopefully other states follow, to a model in which those services are offered through community outreach and community members. Is this, this is happening right now? This is already, yeah, um, what, how can City they? Council Speaker Corey Johnson is, has allocated funding for this. He's a huge supporter of the equality model. He's running for mayor. In New York? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. He supports this vision of this service center. With and us. where can people go that are... are being trafficked right now or being... Sanctuary for Families, the Polaris Project, um, call my cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know you, you do mean that. You'll take everybody in. But, the, you know, I, I, I look at uh, like a lot of the Asian uh, ones. And Wait, hold on. Oh, I mean, this Asian is just... Brothels. No, I'm saying the, the, the massage parlors, Asian massage parlors. Okay. And... They're all around New York. Mm-hmm. They're open to like five, four, whatever in the morning. Mm-hmm. And Are you advertising their still, hours? But they'll still let you in if you get there at like no, five, saying, ten. Yeah, but I'm saying, <laughs> yeah, well, whatever. I'm saying, I'm saying, is does any of that fall under? You know, yeah. where can the, the, these Asian women who are definitely being trafficked? Yeah, absolutely. It help. And um, some of them don't even speak. There's a English. there's a lot of a lot of resources in New York. The New York Asians Women's Center, um, Womenkind, Make the Road. So, the, like the police must know, like That's so the I'm police saying. know. But in the last 
two years, there's been a huge shift from arresting these women mm-hmm. to just to arresting the sex buyers and the and the Johns, the exploiters, and you not know, arresting they, the women. So are you saying Harry should be arrested? Yes, Harry has been locked up for a decade now. <laughs> Harry Robinson should definitely get life. Let me ask you something. What about like strippers and all that? Where do they fall in that? So it's helpful to to define what the sex trade is, and the sex trade includes stripping, brothel, keeping, street gang, internet, and hotel-based prostitution, and pornography. That's all part of the sex trade. It's a system of oppression. It's built on violence and abuse. It's really decriminalizing or legalizing the sex trade is white privilege at its worst. It's protecting white men with power, a.k.a. Epstein, mm-hmm. Over Sorry the rights for and, your loss. <laughs> um, over over the lives of women and girls of color and other minority populations. Yeah, that's who winds up being, being the traffic. most. Yeah, yeah. It's going to sound I don't know, maybe crazy, <laughs> but I'm terrifying. It, what? No. What about uh, Dominatrix? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm saying because. It's, that's big, too, and there's a lot of dungeons in uh, New York City. Yeah, yeah and you've got your finger on the pulse of what's happening, yeah. <laughs> Keith. Keith, trying to show just, you, what, Keith you, you know, should do a, a walking tour of your favorite <laughs> Keith is just dungeons. trying to clear his conscience. He's just going through everything he's done and seeing if anything's okay. Yeah, he's and like, the what answer about massage is no. parlors, <laughs> dominatrix? Yeah. Keith, you're really thinking about the individual <laughs> and not the collective well-being of a society. So if you think about on an individual level, and it's really, it really is this neoliberal lens that many people want to see the sex trade through. It's women in a free market who are empowered to commodify themselves. But it's it's not that. We have to look at it through the collective lens of the well-being of our society. And, and a sex trade really just thrives off of poverty and inequity. And the questions you should be asking are not, oh, but how no, about I'm if saying, it's my birthday? No, well, no, no, no. It's what she's saying is, and the people profiting off of this industry are... Rich white, yeah, men, it's and there's cool. no it's, question. This whole podcast is about Keith's search history. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's our producer, Kevin Kane, I'm calling just Keith to be out. Helpful. Are a lot of people get like a, a, a large percentage of these people like young, vulnerable girls that maybe get swept up by like an emotionally manipulative person, or is it like literally like people getting like shipped in from somewhere? You know what I mean? So like, it's wh- it's both, but it's really what I saw and worked with in Brooklyn was the former. It was. This is sort of before social media, but uh, an exploiter talked about that he'd go up to a group of girls in a mall and say, "You're so pretty," and the girl who like looked down and said, "No, I'm not." Like yeah. that was his victim. Um, now that happens on social media. They'll send out a hundred Instagram messages to girls in the same same sort of way. And I say girls because it is a lot of girls, but it's all, there's also boys in the sex trade. There's also trans women. So I don't mean to exclude anyone. What was can you give us some personal stories? Like legally, like is there anybody you can change their name or whatever because you know we can we can picture what this sounds like but yeah. then you know when you hear So a case that I had and this is actually representative of of many cases that I've had and clients that I've worked with okay. is a, a young girl, she's about 15 at the time, um, who's in a foster home. Mm-hmm. And she had one biological sister who lived with her. And it was her younger sister who noticed and alerted the foster mother that every night in the middle of the night, no matter what time, no matter how tired, a cell phone rings. And her sister answers it, gets up, washes her face, goes out the door, and leaves. 
and she's home in the morning by the time everyone needs to be up and go going to school. Yeah. And it's months of this and it it terrifies the little sister and so she talks to the foster mom and this is a case of a really amazing foster mom who brings it right to the police and and it it really comes down to um how it vulnerable she was at the time and able to be exploited by someone who didn't use force or violence in the beginning, but offered sort of a boyfriend role or seduced her into this, which is how it often starts, a protector role. Yeah. And she was bonded to him through something called trauma bonding. And she wasn't ready to let go of this bond. Yeah. You know, I followed we followed her for a while. We stayed in contact with her foster mom. We tried to talk to her. But she wasn't ready yet for services or for help or, you know, for any involvement with the criminal justice system. I don't know where she is today, but I think about her. So that's just one of many stories I could tell. That one just sticks in my head. Yeah. I also want to share this story from Becca. She's a survivor leader that I work with in Texas. Um, so let me play you that clip. My name is Becca Charleston, and I'm from Dallas, Texas. I grew up in a, in a very typical American family. I'm the youngest of six kids. My parents have been married 56 years coming this January, and I was raised going to church, maybe like many of you, but I had a couple significant events that happened in my young childhood that led me to realize maybe our family wasn't like everyone else's. And one was that my oldest brother committed suicide when I was five years old, and then I was getting bullied at school, and and my first sexual encounter was actually being raped at the age of 14 at a church lock-in. I had a lot of problems with my parents. I, I hid the rape from everyone. I never told anyone. And, and that's a lot for a young girl to keep bottled up inside of her chest. And so at the age of 15, I started coping with drugs. I just wanted to be numb and didn't want to feel the pain that I was feeling in life. And um, so I decided to move out of my parents' house at the age of 16. I, you know, my parents were terrified. They thought I was going to die. And so they actually signed over their parental rights of me and placed me in an institution in East Texas thinking that that would save me. But to me, it was the ultimate form of betrayal and abandonment and rejection by them. And so I did everything I could to work the program. And when I got a chance, I ran and I never looked back. And so I just started living homeless on the street, basically couch surfing, stealing food in order to eat every single day. And one day I met this guy who seemed really nice and he offered me a place to live and told me he had drugs I could use. And it was great at first. The first day, you know, he was, we got high all day and it wasn't until the next day when that evening, later that second evening, and I found myself in the backseat of a car on the track and Harry on Harry Hines Boulevard in Dallas, Texas. A track is a known area of prostitution. And I was being told exactly how to ask people to have sex with me and exactly how much money I had to charge them. And it was like my entire world flipped upside down on top of me. I should have been a sophomore in high school. And here I was being forced into a world of prostitution. All I knew was that if I ran, I'd probably get raped and murdered and chopped up in little tiny pieces. And so I stayed and I obeyed them. At one point, I thought I was getting away. A couple months later, I I ran when I had a chance. And unfortunately, I ran into the arms of another man who would turn around and abuse me and exploit me all over the country. You know, he was 37. He was 20 years older than me. And he abused me and manipulated me from day one. But it really felt like love. And during that time, I was sold on 
every avenue of prostitution across the country of America. I was sold obviously on the street as a young girl. Then that went to being sold in, in private suites and in villas and flown on private jets across the country. And that also includes the legal avenues in Nevada. Uh, that's actually one of the reasons that I, I sued the state of Nevada to try to end legalized prostitution, which unfortunately the judge dismissed the case, but we're about to appeal it. I can't tell you how many times I have been raped. I, too many times to count. How many times, I, I mean, I've been robbed at gunpoint. I've been strangled with guns to my head. How many times I've been in fistfights with grown men trying to run out of hotel rooms with my life because they wanted to get angry that they the experience was over too fast for them. You know, our, how many times I found guns in hotel rooms and how many women I know that have been murdered by the people that buy them or by their traffickers. And it doesn't matter whether you're there by force or by circumstance. It's still a horrific life experience. I think for me, when I finally ran after 10 years of being in the life and being exploited, I left with a million dollars of debt in my name. I had, I mean, repossessed cars my trafficker put in my name, a foreclosed home. My criminal record was extensive. I was a high school dropout. I only got my GED because the federal prison made me. And so it was like, what was I running to? I wound up serving 13 months in federal prison because I was too terrified to tell on my trafficker. And the, the kind of beginning to the end of it all was getting pregnant. I called my family here in Texas and I said, hey, I need help. And they offered me a free place to stay. And so January 7th of 2012, I moved back to the state of Texas and got on Medicaid and food stamps and spent, essentially slept on my parents' couch. And that's a really hard thing to do, especially when you know how much money has passed through your hands. And so... Since that time, I've graduated summa cum laude, got my bachelor's degree in criminal justice. I also went back and got my master's degree in criminology and in criminal justice. And I um, have become a nationally recognized survivor leader, training tens of thousands of law enforcement and social workers across the country. But it took a community of support to get me to this place. Wow. I... Um... I'm really grateful for you sharing that with us. I don't really know what to say except for thank you. So I want to ask you if if you had like 90 seconds to speak to someone or maybe a politician, what would your message be to them? I think I talk about the harms of sex buying and that many people say that we're conflating human trafficking and quote unquote sex work that you can have a, a safe sex trade and also control human trafficking. And I just say you can't. So the sex trade really operates like any other market with economic incentives. If you decriminalize sex trade, you increase the demand for the buyers. The buyers are the economic engine of the whole industry. If there were, um, we removed any impediments to buying sex, the demand would rise and you would have to fill that demand with supply. And who fills that supply? There's the very minority 1% of people in the sex trade consensually, and when they no longer can fill that supply, that's where trafficking occurs. So this argument that decriminalization would curtail trafficking is just dis disproved by that simple economic model. Yeah. More, more brothels, more people to fill the brothels. And Bridget, you brought up earlier a lot of um, the trans community who goes into the sex trade because it's the, it's their best choice. But it's it's the same answer. If we want to address that, we need to use social policy, mm -hmm. um, not not market incentives, not condemn them to be sex slaves, but rather to 
create job opportunities and, and social socialized childcare and more and just a more equitable society all around. Right. Um, yeah. So they have meaningful options. If yeah, it's I'm, tough. Yeah. If it's I'm, like such a complex issue. It's such. It's a, really complex. It's really nuanced. Women I know who work in the sex trade, they prefer to be called sex workers. Yeah. But you're saying that's a misnomer. What what is like sort of like what's a So it's an it's a misnomer to to me and to the community I work with. Someone who who calls himself a sex worker has every right to and that's mm-hmm. how they perceive their experience and their work and I don't want to take that away from them. But for the the people that I work with every day, the sex trade doesn't include any sort of work. It's not the f- image of engaging in the sex trade to put your way through college or law school. There's no fancy dinners. It's not like empowered sex or women wielding leather whips. It's not, yeah. there's nothing about it that's empowering. So they they think of themselves as survivors or as victims. I mean, there's not a great, like, concise word other mm-hmm. than people in prostitution okay. um, or prostituted person because it's something that's happened to them. Yeah, Ask a really dumb question. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> what do you think of uh, Law and Order SVU? Oh, oh, I like to know. <laughs> no, it's the lamest answer. I've never seen it. Oh, okay. oh it's so lame of me. Come I know. on. Well, I want to know if, it's, if it was good or bad. If One I thing I know, um, as a, when I was a prosecutor, is that it really messes with juries who go into like a rape trial and think like, but there will be fibers on the carpet and there will be fingernail <laughs> and there's like. In sex crimes cases, there's no evidence. There's a victim's testimony. Oh, I um, thought it was, I experienced it as more pro-prosecution. Like, when I watch an SVU, I'm just like, I'm out looking for rape, eyeing everybody. Everybody right. looks like a rapist, and I want them all to go right. to jail. Right, but you also think it's easier to do it, because on right. that show. And so really juries go in, and they're like, but why aren't there surveillance footages from the... Right. I know, they're, now they turn into exist. complete morons, because they think they're all their own scientists, yeah. right? And, and that there's just going to be some sort of, like, light they can put on, and they'll, they'll just see everything. Yeah, yeah. right. Marie, Those Mariska Hargitay chase anyone down an alley to get she here? She does good shit, though. She's all about the rape kits. Untested rape kits. There's yeah. so Which many. We could build we could, a, we could. a beautiful homeless shelter with how many <sighs> there are. And how clo- And so, because decriminalization in New York is like such a big topic right now, yeah. and I think a lot of people just think it's either decriminalizing it or not, how probable is it that the equality model could possibly come I'm, into play. I'm really hopeful for it. I think that for people who aren't quite ready to fully decriminalize a sex trade and unleash a Me Too nightmare on our city, yeah. but aren't happy with the status quo, I think it offers a really solid Compromise. alternative. <laughs> it's also the only model, it's, it's so so far, it was pioneered in Sweden. It was formerly known as the Nordic model. It's been adopted by seven other countries I used since. to have one of those in my house. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the only model that has consistently shown to reduce instances of violence and abuse. Yeah, no, I, you're, you're you're right, and I and I definitely yeah, Keith. I have right. been one of those one of those liberal people who thought like that I was kind of cool that I thought sex work should be legal. But honestly, after hearing what you're saying and you know the the real hard facts and the truth about it, I it's clear to me. But I like the equal. The equality model? The equality model. The equality model, guys. We love the equality model. I'm I'm down for getting the perps. Let's get the perps. Right now, as of today, I'm a reformed sex buyer. Wow. Can we get the cupcake? Can we get this (laughs) note? Do we have a cupcake? (laughs) Yes. Okay, guys. So that was Alexi. She is a badass, clearly. So here's what happened. 
we ended up inviting Alexi back to the podcast, along with Sarah Jones. Yes, the two of them together. But also, I brought in a group of incredible women who work in advocacy to share their experiences. I had been to a panel where all these women spoke, and they were really inspiring and informative. And I couldn't miss the opportunity to have them on the show as well. Okay, so we've got three girls and one Keith. We've got Alexi, we've got Sarah, we've got four panelists. And that may sound like a true clusterfuck, but seriously, don't worry. Just listen to what they're saying. I am hoping that anyone who listens to this will come away from the podcast feeling way more informed and hopefully will pass on that information. Okay, so here's Alexi and all the rest of us. Hey, Alexi. Okay, so we're so excited that you're back. So I was lucky enough to go to this panel last week that was about the sex trade. And I was so impressed and I felt so educated when I left there that I really didn't want to take any chances with this episode. And I asked some of the people from the panel to come and join us on the show to, to follow up. You can't have this conversation without Survivor Voices. So first, I'm going to introduce my colleague and friend, Ann Matheson, who's a clinical social worker with me at Sanctuary for Families and runs a justice and empowerment program for teens. I want to point out first and foremost, so the equality model recognizes that prostitution is a form of severe gender-based violence. So it sees this issue through that lens. Which and can is you why, talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the reason that we see it through that framework is because any individual who ha- is exploited in the commercial sex industry, whether they identify as a sex worker, as a victim of human trafficking, or they don't use any of that language at all, they are still dealing with the severe psychological and medical ramifications of being bought over and over again for sex by strangers, multiple times a day, multiple days a week, multiple weeks a year. And those repercussions include, um, you know, genital injuries, rectal prolapse, internal injuries, you know, burns, stab wounds, head injuries. Traumatic brain injury is a high, um, has a high prevalence amongst people in the commercial sex industry because sex buyers and pimps will often slam their heads against car doors and windows and walls. So this is a form of violence that is primarily targeted against women and And by primarily, children. you mean almost, almost entirely. Almost exclusively. And so can you, can you tell us a little bit about the countries that have found success with the equality yeah. model? So... The equality model was first introduced by Sweden, and the model specifically decriminalizes people who are bought and sold in the industry. And so what they saw happen was that there was a dramatic shift in the country where folks initially had been ambivalent about the law, they didn't want the law, and then after implementation, after there was a significant amount of education, they saw the number of sex buyers half. And the other really important thing is that they focused on, they said, what we need to do instead is to provide robust social services, medical services to people who are exploited in this industry. And so they created these three comprehensive centers in major cities so that anyone in the industry could access indefinitely services for free. And it's something that actually we're pioneering now in New York City. It's going to be launching in a couple of months, uh, a similar model that was inspired by the Swedish units. What are the centers? The Empower Center, the Empower Clinic. That's cool, because one of the points that you you brought up, I think, Alexi, at the panel, was that if you decriminalize prostitution, then, then you aren't seen as a victim anymore. So those resources for, if you're in a consensual 
employment, you're, you don't need help. You have, it's a legal job, so those resources might go away. The Empower Clinic doesn't discriminate on whether you find yourself in the sex trade as a quote-unquote sex worker or whether you're trafficked there. You need the same services. You want the services, and they're offered. Right. Will you introduce Mel? Yeah. So I also have with me my good friend Melanie Thompson. She's a survivor. She's a fierce advocate. And we've been working on different legislative actions for years now that all have to do with trafficking. Um, so I'll pass it to Mel. Yeah, and Mel, I, you know, to the to the point of some, you know, some people feeling like, well, this is the job I'm in; it's the only way I can make money. Like they don't, they sort of don't see themselves as victims. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So what we find is that this idea of sex work. Well, first I say sex is neither. I say sex is not work, and work is not sex. So a lot of times you might come across somebody who identifies as a consensual quote-unquote sex worker, but because they haven't fully grasped or understood the complexities of their trauma. Once you grasp this idea that prostitution is a system that thrives on other oppressive systems, then you'll fully understand that you can't make a quote-unquote choice in an industry that that literally thrives on misogyny, patriarchy, and capitalism. And more to Anne's point, gender-based violence. So in my case, right, I was I was 12 years old when I was trafficked and I had a pimp at the time, but then once my pimp went to jail, I also continued in, in this lifestyle thereafter. So I've seen both sides of like what it's like to be exploited under a pimp and then what it's like to claim quote-unquote consent or agency. And what I found is that the traumas are still the same and both sex buyers don't care whether or not you have a pimp or not. And sex buying still happens regardless as to whether you claim yourself a victim, a trafficking survivor, a prostitution survivor, whatever have you. What I did realize for me at 16, I realized that I was I was going back into prostitution under this guise that I made up in my head that nobody can hurt me anymore because now I'm setting my terms and I'm charging a certain amount. And like I get to choose when I shut the door or when I cut ads off or whatever because I had to you know, tell myself that I'm now in control. But the more and more that I was bought, pimp or no pimp, I still felt the same shitty ass way. Excuse my French, I'm a potty mouth. Oh, no, no, no. This but, is a disgusting podcast. But so I need people to, to and I want to emphasize that because so many people that are, that are screaming sex work is work and like our rights and our agency and our choice, it's not necessarily about that when the same individuals who are shouting that all suffer from marginalization and are still coming from the same communities that I've come from. And how did you get out? Huh, that's a fun question. Um, so I was arrested when I was 13. Um, cops suck, by the way. I don't, I don't bang with police either. Keith also doesn't care for police. Yeah, <laughs> so well, we have that in common. But um, I was arrested and um, mistreated by the police. Long to a whole nother podcast right there. Okay. Um, and then was put into the foster care system. So thereafter, I went through a couple of juvenile detentions and then ended up advocating at 14. But in, in the midst, bouncing around from foster home to foster home. So it's kind of where I'm at. Can I ask a question? I wanted to just, because it helped me so much to hear activists and, you know, people who really understand this issue talk about PTSD. We associate it with, you know, war. And actually, from what I understand, many or most people in the industry have PTSD rates as high as actual veterans of wars. I don't think people understand that. I have the medication to prove that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can, nobody gets out of this 
without having real Absolutely. psychological damage. That's, I always say you can take, sorry, you can always, you can take the person out of prostitution, but you can't take prostitution out of the person, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because the trauma that we face in a life is something that stays with you lifelong. So like granted, I've been out for some years now and I've been advocating for some years now, but there are still times that I'll do a talk or a panel and then freeze and break down. Or there's sometimes that I walk into a room and somebody in the audience looks like a sex buyer that I've once had, or looks like someone who had a gun to my head. And it will, it, it will cause like anxiety and things like that. This is how this shit translates. And this is something that unfortunately I have to deal with for the rest of my life. And there was a woman in the audience the other night who, because you guys spoke a little bit about people not knowing they were trafficked. Mm -hmm. And this woman had been trafficked at 13 and she didn't know until she was well into her 40s, like even understand that she'd been trafficked. And that's a question? Yeah. Because like when you think traffic, like you think, Somebody like snuck you on a bus from a, you know, that like, can you, can or you like just, Estonia or something? Yeah. You don't think Queens. <laughs> yeah. You know? So, can you Astoria. talk a little bit about right. trafficking and the definition of that? So, I'm going to introduce Yasmin Vafa. She's the co founder and executive director of Rights for Girls, which is a human rights organization working to end gender based violence and sex trafficking in the United States. Yasmin, can you give it? the sort of overview of what human trafficking is and how it's linked to the sex trade. A lot of folks don't realize that in the United States, the vast majority of sex trafficking victims are in fact American born. We're talking over 80%. Disproportionately black and brown youth, disproportionately girls, gender non-conforming youth of color, from foster care, kids with you know childhood histories of sexual abuse. You can't talk about it without looking at our histories deeply entrenched, racialized gendered violence. You know, this is colonial. This is- it goes back to Thomas Jefferson and yeah. Sally. Yeah, I mean, well, even you, before that. Yeah, even before yeah, that. before that. Uh, and this is Laura Ramirez, program coordinator for, at the Coalition Against Trafficking in Women. In my transnational feminist organizing, we're not talking about America only. We're talking about all of our homelands. So in the panel, I was mentioning my people's own history, right? So my family is from the Caribbean islands. And back in the Caribbean islands, the native indigenous tribe were called the Taino Indians. We were a matriarchal society. We worshiped goddesses. Women would fight and be involved politically right alongside men. So when the colonizer stepped foot on our lands, the very first thing he did was sell our women. So that's what my advocacy is about. And I think that we need to remember where we're coming from when we have this conversation. Because I mean, especially, you know, politically nowadays, if you don't know your history, you're damned to repeat it. Adding to that real quick, I mean, we work with a lot of Native women all over the country and a lot of Indigenous women tell us that there is no word for prostitution in their mother language because it was invented by white colonial settlers. It didn't exist as a concept. So this notion that it's the oldest profession, like that's an insult to so many of our cultures, to so many of our sisters. So when people talk about this as empowering today, you know, we really have to look at the history and understand it as part of a long-standing legacy of racialized right. and gendered violence. And a long-standing tradition of you know, it's like, you know it's going to take a while f for the culture to catch up just because it's been so pounded in our heads by the people who are profiting off of this to feel that way and to think that way. And Anne, you mentioned, I think, that it's, that's the idea of consent, like giving money, like you just have complete rights to that person's body and whatever you want. Because you slap a $100 bill down on the dresser, that that's supposed to make it okay that you raped someone? I mean, I think it's the biggest success of the sex industry that 
we primarily talk about the people who are bought and sold and we debate over and over like how much choice they had or didn't have. I mean, who are the people that are buying and the people that are pimping and the people that are trafficking and why aren't we talking about the choices that they have? People need to realize that. And as a result, you know, we would encourage folks to understand the equality model isn't just something we're coming up with here. It is the prevailing global progressive policy approach to this issue. A number of countries have adopted it and the results speak for themselves. Like a quick example, Sweden adopted it in 1999. Sweden has uh, doubled the population of New Zealand. That's the only country that's adopted full decriminalization. And one woman in prostitution has died the entire time in Sweden. And it was at the hands of her partner, not a sex buyer. Whereas dozens of women in prostitution have been killed at the hands of sex buyers and pimps in in New Zealand. So those numbers speak for themselves. The first countries to have adopted the equality model, Sweden, Norway, Iceland are consistently ranked at the top five for gender equality, right? The cultures have shifted there. So we know it works and we think this cultural shift is something that's critical. For so long, you know, all these things that have become so normalized, it's like there were these things that for years it was like, don't make a problem. If this happens to you, if you if you're hurt, if somebody rapes you, whatever, keep it cool. Be be cool. Have the guys like you. Ugh, you know, be likable by the guys. Yeah. Like, don't and so we've you know, the people who are actively trying to change the culture a little and these things and now people aren't are, are speaking up and mm-hmm. are standing and, and this stuff is becoming unacceptable and this just has to be the next thing. Talking about the experience of survivors, we're not going out there and pushing survivors who aren't ready to speak about their experiences in front of microphones and re-traumatizing them and say, hey, talk about the thing that was worst in your life, the most exploitative humiliating thing that you're still dealing with and the PTSD and the trauma and you can barely get out of bed, but here, talk about it. (laughs) So the voices out there are going to be disproportionate. You know, I am a white woman and I do have privilege and I do have resources and, and I'm not here talking for myself. I'm talking for those voices who need me to amplify them. Can I say one thing? Sure. One thing. We can't wait. (laughs) Of course you can. Everybody knows that Pimps come in 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds. A lot of people are broken. So how do we, you know, get reach not only the the, the prostitute, but also but the, pimps. the pimps. So one of the characters in Sale by Day is actually a reformed and remorseful pimp turned motivational speaker and life coach <laughs> and therapist. Um, and my name is Cookie. And, uh, you know, I could talk to you about that offline. But, uh, I mean, I will tell you that, I, you know, I was in foster care myself. I was abused myself um, when I was a, a little shorty. And also, I will say this. I watched, you know, my father was a pimp. My daddy was a pimp. So you could see it's intergenerational. But I also want to be real careful that we don't, you know, just make it look like it's it's um, pathological within families or whatever. This is systemic, like um, Sis was saying over here, Mel. Um, it's a system, and um, people benefit from families like mine that's been broken because of all the rest of it, the prison industrial complex and whatnot. I think I got, you know, friends with grandparents, all many generations in there. That's about racism right there. So it's bigger, and also, I'm going to be honest with you, we can't always be first. Like these ladies, they really need, or women or females, whatever the proper term, that I don't want to say <laughs> the wrong thing. But, you know, lady, the, the the female aspect of this, it is real big. And we got to look at that. And then, you know, you're right. You got to look at the male side. Yeah. Okay. And I think it's yeah. like also it's not, it's not simple. It's not like, okay, you're a prostitute, but um, now give us your prostitute card and now you're a pediatrician. You don't just right. switch jobs. There's, there's a, It's like any kind of social work or outreach, like there's a long, complicated process to 
helping people have more options and, and access to, to a better life. Yeah, it's not that easy, but it's worth the work to have yeah. children not become sex slaves. I think I always come back to this. I want us to stop reducing this conversation to a debate about choice when we're talking about individuals who have the least amount of choices in our society. We need to change and hold men accountable and really socialize men and boys to see women and girls as fully equal human beings. From our perspective, it's critical to decriminalize those engaged in prostitution, right? Recognizing we should not criminalize acts of survival. We should instead provide these individual vital and meaningful resources so that they don't have to engage in sex acts with strangers to survive. And in addition to that, expunge their records, right? If it's not something you should be arrested for, we believe in sealing and expunging their records and providing them other meaningful, viable options and alternatives. And yeah, and and I'd love to know some, where can people go to donate, to learn, to join the movement? Yeah, so we've set up a survivor fund. You can text the words world we, which stands for world without exploitation to um, 44321. And that money goes directly to funding survivors advocacy because while some of us are doing this as a job, those who are doing it just out of their kindness of their hearts and their experience should actually be funded and paid for their advocacy. So that's our, our big funding goal. And then look out for our legislation that we're introducing in January called the Equality Model. Um, and Hashtag Equality Model. Yeah, and follow us on social media. Our tags are no buyer, no pimp, NY uh, on Twitter and Instagram. Well, we want to thank Sarah Jones so much. Go see Sell by Date and follow her and have your life changed. I want to thank all of you for your time and your your effort and what you're doing. Thank you. And, and I want to thank the listeners because I know this isn't like the most slap in the knee fun episode, but it's real important. And so... I hope you support the equality model, or at least you got some more information today. Thank you. Thank you. Stay strong. Talk soon. Hey, 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 three girls, one Keith. Three Girls, One Keith is a Spotify original podcast. Our executive producers are me, Amy Schumer, and Kevin Kane. Our executive producers at Spotify are Bart Coleman and Robin Hopkins. Three Girls, One Keith is produced in collaboration with the team at Gilded Audio and Dan Rosato. And by the way, make sure to follow Three Girls, One Keith so you don't miss a single episode. 